You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network. Signal to Noise is supported by Audix. Check out their new line of Pro Studio headphones, as well as the A131 and A133 large diaphragm studio condenser microphones at audixusa.com. Alan and Heath has asked us to read this. These witty little intro spots are surprisingly tricky to write. Maybe we'll try a joke this time. Knock, knock. Who's there? Who? Who's there? Who? Who, who, who? Who let the dogs out? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the... Holy cow, I'm loud too, bro, aren't I? <laughs> by. Is that better? Aren't you uh, guys professionals? No. <laughs> you would no, absolutely so, not. Steve, but no, we are not. <laughs> All right, that's better. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Signal to Noise podcast. I am Kyle Churnside. I'm joined by Chris Leonard and Michael Lawrence from various parts of the United States of America. How are you guys doing? Hanging in there. Good, man. I feel like we haven't really talked that much this week. How are you guys doing? How are you guys, have you guys been up to? Busy? I know Chris, yeah. you've been Chris, super Chris, busy. Chris. Super busy, yeah. I mean, we're in the, in the process of... You know, rebuilding you know, more employees, get more work. So it's all, all good problems to have. But it's, you know, uh, today I've been dealing with um, headaches of virtual events. We've had internet bandwidth issues and backup ISPs and firewall this. And I don't want to ever hear firewall again. Uh, I'm ready to go back to, you know, make an air move as opposed How, to bitch how's move. Gut, <laughs> how's your gut? How's your gut? Do you have time to it's think good. about that? It's oh. good. It's, oh. it's good. So, so Steve, uh, we haven't introduced you, but anyway, I had a uh, my I had to get my appendix removed emergency a couple of weeks ago, so I'm I'm healing up from that. So whenever something inside your body bursts, it's it's categorically urgent. Um, we could we could name it. Kyle, else. you 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 did sound for an opera, sort of. Yeah, I did in a circus tent. Imagine that. <laughs> um, one shout out to the crew that we had. There was this lady named Kate that was stage managing the thing. It was awesome. Um, it was the Union Street Opera. Uh, it was a church that formed this opera thing. We did it in Circa Flora, which is a big top downtown St. Louis, right down from the Fox and the Powell Symphony Hall. And I haven't done an opera in a while, and I was stoked for it. And I mic'd up all the. Was your was your voice up to it? Was it? <laughs> yeah. You know me. I'm always practicing. Um, <laughs> rehearsing. I like to call it rehearsing. Uh, but I mic'd up everybody. It was nine in each opera. It was two operas, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Got them all going, and I ended up not using any mics whatsoever on the orchestra or the, the actors per the directors of the show. So I turned on an MC mic and watched two <laughs> operas a night. It was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know we want to we want to jump right into it because we have some interesting stuff to talk about tonight. But real quick, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, by the time everyone hears this, we will have crossed 200,000 downloads, which is really cool. A really cool landmark. Um, so thanks everybody for tuning in and for putting up with us and for uh, being engaged in the community and, and making this thing what it is, which is really cool. Enough about I, that. I do want to give one other housekeeping. I want to give um, Live Sound Boot Camp. Um, they put an episode yep. out this week called Mixing Big Shows on Small Systems. It's a good episode with uh, Ryan, John, and, and, and some other guys. Uh, I think that might be the end of season one for them. They're, so go back and check the rest of season one. They have a season two in the works. Um, so Live Sound Boot Camp and also Church Sound Podcast, both of which are on our Pro Sound Web Podcast Network. So share the love. 
And shout out to the super loud FedEx truck outside my office right now. Yeah, um, super all right, loud. So, so joining us on the show this week, back by popular demand, which doesn't happen very often. Yes, yes. Uh, all, th- Mr- all three of us <laughs> voted to have him back on. <laughs> For real. Mr. Steve Edelman. Steve is the vice president of the Event Safety Alliance. He joined us about a year ago, uh, and he's also the, the resident attorney there. And uh, the ESA has been kind of instrumental through uh, keeping an eye on, on the industry trends over the last year and a half and issuing guidance on, on reopening and safety, and they've done a lot of really important work. I was uh, really honored to be able to, There goes the FedEx truck, finally. Get out of here. Um, We're talking baseball, too, man. And yeah, man. Uh, right and I'm sure we'll get, I'm sure we'll get some of that. I, I, was, I was really honored to be invited to speak at the Event Safety Summit uh, a couple months back, and I had a great nice. time there. I, I emailed Jacob. I told him I wanted to come back this year, Steve, so maybe you can pull a string for me. Um, <laughs> we got your back. <laughs> um, so before we before we jump into it, uh, Kyle Turnside, what's the coolest thing you have with an arm's length? Oh, come back to me. I'm going to go grab it. <laughs> it ran away. All right, Chris Leonard, what do you got? So I was, I've, I've been in the process of cleaning out my desk and bags and things, and so I came across a Microsoft Office floppy oh, disk wow. for, for Windows... Uh, Windows version 4.2. This is disk 12. I'm not sure how many disks it took uh, to get to the full version of Windows 4.2, but nonetheless, f- floppy disk. Floppy disk is that? That's 1.44 megabytes, right? Yes. An astounding amount of data. Uh, I have uh, a bull. It's just a bull. I was eating some nachos. My friend Sam Fine uh, loudspeaker. A bowl or a bull? Uh, just a the bull, like that you eat cereal out of food bowl. A, a, a oh, bowl. I thought you were talking yeah. about a bowl. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, like a cereal bowl. Sam Fine, uh, good friend of mine. He's a loudspeaker engineer for Sonos currently. Um, he came to visit for Fourth of July, and he brought me performance cheese. So now you're wondering, what is Performance Cheese? Performance Cheese is an like sort of a commercial, it's like a Velveeta-type product that he bought from a food service company because he was trying to make some recipe. It melts better, I guess, extra emulsifier. Um, he could only order it in 30-pound quantities. So yeah. he ordered 30 pounds of cheese. He brought me a, a pound and a half. So I've been eating that <laughs> on my nachos. Back to Kyle Turnside, what do you got? It's probably like Emo's Provel Cheese, bro. It's really good. It's quite tasty, it's gotta I be. Say. Yeah. So I have Draco. Oh so, my gosh! A, a, as a, a parent, as a parent, you <laughs> you tend to adopt things that kids don't want any longer. So we have two ferrets, and this is Draco, and Missy's in the cage right now. But he did run. I've away, seen so. Draco on TikTok, by the way. I've seen your daughter on TikTok. You know, yeah, yeah. She hangs out. These guys are so cool. Like I would have never thought ferrets were awesome. Like they don't bite. They don't stink. They. It's uh, kind of like a, it's up. like a slinky with a sock over it. Like that's it what is. they feel like, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's really strange. They uh-huh. go after the dogs, too, so it's kind of funny. Mr. Steve Edelman, what's the coolest thing with an arm's reach? The hat. My, my, no, it's not a hat. A hat <laughs> is for normal people. This is my safety monitor fez. It's high-vis. It's cornea searing in the size of a chicken bucket. So is I wear this tassel? with pride. Is that a tassel on the side? It's a fez. Of course it's a tassel. It's fucking awesome. I love this. That's fantastic. Uh, all right. Maybe I'll wear it during the entire podcast just to <laughs> keep me in the, in the right frame of mind. So, Steve, uh, we basically had a lot of questions coming in over the last couple of months since we had you on the show last time. And as a lot of us are, are very thankfully starting to return to work and return to live events, um, we're seeing stuff like COVID compliance, positions, 
and we're seeing kind of new thoughts about liability and new thoughts about cancellation clauses, which is definitely something that I want to talk about. Um, and so a lot of people have had questions for us based on what they heard you say on the show last time. So we wanted you to come back and give us more of your time very generously and kind of talk us through some of these trends. Um, so I guess we can start with um, since we spoke, which was what, Chris, like about a year ago now. Yeah, it was um, August, August of last year. Actually, oh, perfect. Yeah. So what have we Which is seen crazy. Change? Which is crazy because – hold yeah, on, it, it real quick. Crazy. So no, we were no. like, hey, things are starting to open back up now. <laughs> you know, here's what to expect. Psych. Yeah. We were so, so innocent then. <laughs> so what's – what what has what's different between now and then, Steve? Maybe stuff that you didn't you didn't anticipate. You know, how has that landscape changed for you? Oh my God! What is this like a <laughs> fifty-hour podcast? How much time yeah. do you think I have? <laughs> Jeez, I mean, since last August, everything's different. Since yesterday, everything's different. For goodness' sake. You know, I get whiplash getting out of bed every morning just following (laughs) CDC guidance and and then figuring out how it affects my clients and and our industry. Nothing is the same. Nothing. I mean, Jesus, where where should we start? You got to get like an update from someone every day, right? Like, yeah, you get like like brief sheets. Like, that's pretty cool. Uh, (laughs) I I think. Okay, so one thing one thing that you did tell me has not changed in my defense is sort of the liability angle of this. Um, yeah, can you, that, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, let's just sure. dispel or yeah, get the cause that's, that's low hanging fruit I think to to pass on. Yeah, so let, let's let's do some low hanging fruit. So you know, for your podcast listeners, I, I am an attorney. I'm licensed in Arizona. I have practiced in many other states. Um, what I'm going to tell you now is good law wherever you're listening to this, if you're anywhere in the United States or in Canada, because these are basic common law principles. Um, governors and elected officials can mess with some of this, but none of what I'm about to say has been significantly screwed up by any elected officials, at least not yet. Um, as we report this, but, you know, drop this podcast soon because everything I'm about to say could be outdated, I don't know, by like an hour from now. Um, liability. So there has not been a tidal wave of personal injury lawsuits arising from people who attended or worked at events and then asserted that they got COVID-19 by attending or working that event. Not only has there not been a tidal wave of such personal injury lawsuits, there has not even been a trickle, not even a drip, drip, drip. There has been nothing. Um, I know that from my own careful viewing of this and talking to a lot of people. A lot of people, which for me includes, I have a number of smart friends in the event insurance industry, and between me and them, we would know if there was some trend line that was creeping upwards. So there isn't, and I can say that with real confidence. That makes sense. It makes sense that there hasn't been really any personal injury claims arising from attendance at live events. And the reason for that is the law itself. So this really hasn't changed since last August. It hasn't changed in you know, hundreds of years. It's basic common law. So, you know, for your podcast listeners, if you are the kind of person who is inclined to listen to a lawyer, 
Have that lawyer not accusing you of anything, not charging you either, if under those circumstances you want to take a note or two because there's about to be law discussed. Here, go, limber up because it's going to happen right now. Three, two, one, let's go. Okay, so personal injury claims are torts. When, when you hear about negligence, the category of law is called a tort. Um, in order to prove a tort claim the plaintiff, the the victim, has to prove four elements by a preponderance of the evidence. Preponderance of the evidence means more likely than not. Um, For fans of math, that means 51% or higher. Um, In a tort claim, a plaintiff has to prove the following four elements. That the defendant, so we'll call it the venue or whoever operates the venue for an event, that they owed a duty of care, that the venue or event operator breached that duty, that the breach of their duty was a proximate cause of their resulting harm. So the plaintiff has to prove duty, breach, causation, harm. Okay? So your notes should say duty, breach, causation, harm, plaintiff, preponderance of the evidence. Let's now apply that. Because none of this has changed since last August. Hasn't changed in hundreds of years. Basic common law. Every law student learns this in like the first week of first year torts class. And then they spend the entire rest of first year trying to figure out what the hell these words mean. I'm giving it to you in like five minutes. So hang on. This this won't hurt a bit. Uh, may hurt a little. But anyway. Um, in order to prove that somebody got sick by attending an event, they would have to prove First, that there was a duty of care. Well, there is. Everyone has a legal duty to behave reasonably under their own circumstances. Applying that to, you know, July, August 2021, that means that we are reopening while there is a pandemic, still with a Delta variant, and depending on where you're located, a significant number of people who are unvaccinated. So, is there a duty of care? Yes. The duty is to behave reasonably under those circumstances. Those circumstances are very challenging. Breach? Well, that's what the plaintiff will allege. That's what they have to prove. Let's just set that aside for right now because when we get to the third element, proximate cause, here's the one that rings the bell. Here's why there has not been any personal injury claims arising from attendance at an event. In order to prove the third element of a tort, proximate cause, the victim, the plaintiff, would have to show that it is more likely than not that wherever else they went during the incubation period for COVID-19 and maybe for the Delta variant, which is super infectious, unlike all the other places they went, they contracted the virus only at that venue. So if they went to the supermarket that day, earlier in the day, they'd have to rule out that anyone who was at the supermarket at the same time was carrying the virus. If they walked their dog and stopped to chat with the neighbor, they'd have to rule out the neighbor and the dog. <laughs> you see how difficult it gets. You know, when I talk to people in New York City, I, you know, I'll drop the name Dwayne Reed because everyone who's ever been in New York knows there's a Dwayne Reed on every corner. And so the plaintiff would have to rule out every Dwayne Reed that they went into during the incubation period for this terrible virus, and they wouldn't be able to. 
And so the only three environments where people have asserted personal injury claims are the three environments where people don't leave. It's like Hotel California. You know, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave a cruise ship because everybody who's there is there. Um, a house of corrections, hopefully nobody's leaving, um, or a residential nursing home facility. So those are the three environments where people actually have had colorable claims, and even there, there hasn't been significant litigation. Um, so in our world, in the world where people are going to stores and to events, yeah, there's just no likelihood of proving the third element of a tort, proximate cause, by a preponderance of the evidence, and that explains why there has not and will not be personal injury claims. So, you know, for your podcast listeners, they should rest easy. They're not going to get sued because somebody says they got sick by going to an event. They're not going to because there's no lawyer who wants to keep their money who is going to file that lawsuit. It is a loser. What if it was like a group thing, like there was a mass, like 12 people in the same row all of a sudden got it or something like that? Oh, we had that scenario last summer. We call it Sturgis. It was the Sturgis <laughs> Motorcycle Rally in South Dakota. I remember we, talking about We watched that movie. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, there were a ton of people who got sick from COVID-19 who attended that. And even somebody died in Minnesota immediately after they came back from Sturgis. And even they could not prove by a preponderance of the evidence that unlike the Quick Mart where they filled up their 64-gallon, you know, diet soda, that only while they were attending a particular event at Sturgis did they get sick. And even there, they couldn't identify who got them sick, which means they couldn't say who breached their duty of care. So it's really difficult. This is... This is one of the few times when the law actually provides a social safety valve. Um, you know, we have a lot of things to worry about, but let's focus on public health and public safety and not worry about the law. Um, since, since I'm kind of on a roll and we're talking about low-hanging fruit, can I do one other bit of low-hanging fruit? Let's do it, Steve. Let's do it. All right. Yes. Um, HIPAA. <laughs> HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of like where this is going. 1992, I think. Um, something like that. It was the early 1990s. HIPAA. There are people who have asserted that they do not have to say what their vaccination status is because HIPAA protects their medical information. There's a legal term for that That argument that people are making. The legal term is wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is not legally a thing because HIPAA, it's a federal regulation. It, it is like all federal regulations. Again, I'm a lawyer. I have had to read federal regulations. Consider yourselves lucky, guys. Um, and I say this to you three and all your listeners. If you have never had to read a federal regulation in the Code of Federal Regulations, the CFRs, um, count your blessings. It's really boring, really, really <laughs> long, boring stuff that's hard to read. But if 
you know, there were a weapon pointed to your temple, you could do it, and then you would learn the same thing that I have learned, which is HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, does not apply in the context of events. Rather, HIPAA applies exclusively did I say that? Exclusively, only, however you would use some word that means only in this environment, only in the context of healthcare. So doctors, mm. um, you know, physical therapists, um, phlebotomists, they need to protect your medical information because it is acquired in the context of medical care. We event people, um, you know, we show folk, you know, the circus crowd, we aren't providing medical care. Um, at least we shouldn't be. And so <laughs> if we receive someone's vaccination status, it is not in a HIPAA-protected context. So, in the, you know, in the interest of plucking another piece of low-hanging fruit, Here's a lawyer, you know, shedding my usual defense of saying it depends, because usually legal things do depend, but this one doesn't. This one is unequivocal. HIPAA does not apply in our world. If somebody asserts, I'm not going to tell you whether I've been vaccinated or not, and HIPAA says I don't have to, nah, 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 then you can say, whoa, you think that, do you? Well, Thank you for coming, but you need to turn around and go home, or at least not here, because we're not letting you in. Na 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 na, and that is legally correct. Right. So, it's the same. Is it not the same way that simply like Seven Eleven can say no shoes, no shirt, no service type of thing? Right. I mean, or no. Is that that's that's different, but also relevant to this discussion. Uh, so, shall we go there? Do it. I have a question. Yeah, I was, I, I, I'm, I'm curious. So, so I, I'm just asking, like, so if not HIPAA, is there any other way people say, hey, you don't have the right, whatever right means or whatever. And that's the language people say, hey, you don't have the right to ask me this. I don't have to tell you that, like, you know. But then you don't have to come into my venue. Well, so you guys have just done the two sides of the coin. So l let's unpack that because, Chris, mm -hmm. you use the word that that people use when they want to not do the things that public health professionals are telling us all to do. And Michael, you are giving the correct response. So let's, let's play that out kind of longhand so that your podcast listeners understand their status relative to the law. So we have in the United States, a bill of rights. It is constitutional protections against various forms of government discrimination. Produced, That's what the Constitution uh, does, by the way. Um, so I, I don't mean to go all lawyer on you, but here's a little history lesson about the law that governs our great land. Um, the Constitution protects people against government infringement of our civil rights and civil liberties. No shoes, no shirt, no service has nothing to do with government. Um, it is a series of rules by private enterprise, and they can do that. Um, if you wish to add a COVID-relevant item, um, no face covering, no service. Um, no proof of vaccination, no service. Those are perfectly legal because there's no constitutionally protected right mm. to enter someone else's private property or privately operated event space. 
that's not a right. Um, you know, you could watch Hamilton the musical and look in vain for any reference to, you know, a right to enter someone else's property and do whatever the hell you want. That is not legally correct either. So when people talk about rights, which is often how unwillingness to follow public health guidance is framed. They, they say, oh, you know, it's my right to not get vaccinated. Certainly that's true. That, that is true. It's not necessarily true. In fact, there is a U.S. Supreme Court case from the early 20th century, um, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which actually says the federal government, well, it says government, it was referring to Massachusetts government, uh, government can compel people to get vaccinated under certain circumstances um, because even under the United States Constitution, our rights are not unlimited rights. None of them are unlimited rights. Um, you know, the most cherished right of many people is the right of free speech under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. But we all know you can't scream fire in a crowded movie theater. That's First Amendment speech, but it is constrained by the greater need to have a safe public. So when, when people couch their unwillingness to get vaccinated and, and nonetheless their insistence on attending events um, in terms of rights, that's not a legally correct, constitutionally correct argument. Our constitutional rights are all circumscribed by the needs to get along with other humans in public places. Um, that's why you can, you can do more of whatever the hell you want when you're by yourself in your own private space. But the more you are interacting with others, the more our, our unfettered liberty is in fact fettered. It's, it's limited because you know, one person's full expression of liberty infringes on the next person's liberty. Anyway, the point is, after that little constitutional history lesson, um, venues, events, um, general contractors hiring subcontractors are all perfectly within their legal rights to, to insist upon proof of vaccination, to not hire people who are not vaccinated, just like you can decline to hire someone who lacks their, I don't know, OSHA 10 certification or who lacks PPE that's appropriate for the work site. You know, you don't have to allow those people on your work site and you probably don't want to. They're, they're a health hazard. Similarly, vaccination status works exactly the same way. Same thing with wearing a face covering. So the law hasn't changed. In fact, the law is fairly malleable to change circumstances. And, you know, our circumstances are changing really rapidly. But the legal application to those circumstances is pretty straightforward, actually. And I, you know, I personally find that to be comforting because, again, I do wake up with whiplash every day <laughs> following the science, which I do. Um, but at least I don't get whiplash following the law. The yeah. law still makes sense in most places. I'm curious, uh, maybe this is a little hanging fruit, maybe it's a rabbit trail. Um, so when it comes to COVID, uh, COVID compliant officers, um, 
you know, from what I can tell, you basically can take a two-hour course online and you're now, air quotes, officially a COVID compliance <laughs> officer, right? So I, I, I'm, I'm... Steve looks very triggered right now, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I, Automatically had I, I just broke out into a sweat. <laughs> I, um, I'm, I'm curious as to, maybe this is an onion here, um, what what that looks like um should we as a society do more than that is that enough like i don't know like i'm sure you have some initial thoughts in that area it just it it just seems kind of crazy that it's like a two-hour online course is now a certification hey that that's a strong term covid compliance officer and that's like that's, that's a very official title for something that i could go online and get my i can you know get my uh, marriage license i can go marry somebody tomorrow for two hours certificate that, that doesn't seem like it'd be a correlation there i don't know uh, I do. <laughs> without without naming names, I have taken one of these online two hour sixty dollars fifty or sixty dollar COVID compliance officer training courses. Um, I did that early last fall. Um, you know, to use another legal term, it sucked. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was not at all a substitute for actually learning some basic science and then hanging on for dear life as CDC and WHO and, and other reliable public health agencies and epidemiologists learned more and therefore told us more. Um, so, no, I'm personally not a big fan of you know, some of the more popular COVID compliance officer training programs for exactly the reason that you say. Um, I myself have been a COVID compliance officer, thus the you you say know, you got safety the hat to prove monitor. It. Yeah. Fez. <laughs> it's not a hat, it's a fez. It actually is a fez. Um, you should post a picture of me wearing this thing in the show. I, don't worry, I will. We'll, we'll get one, yeah. Um, so <laughs> it, that was more... That was more fun last fall when we didn't have a vaccine and we didn't have the Delta variant to worry about. Sure. Now, COVID compliance is, frankly, both more simple and more complicated. It's simpler because there really isn't much to COVID compliance anymore. Get vaccinated, show proof of vaccination. There, pretty much done. Um, There will be, I suppose a few legitimate exceptions based on religion or health issues. I have not personally run into someone who has such a legitimate reason for an exemption from getting vaccinated. Um, I have, in fact, talked to people who claim that they do. It turns out that they just are effectively anti-vaxxers and don't like calling themselves that for whatever reason. Um, I think that there is a societal imperative, and particularly in the event industry, a massive need for people to get vaccinated, because our industry is not going to survive with people being physically distanced by six feet. You know, we can't maintain venues operating at a quarter capacity, an eighth capacity, and spending money on, you know, updated HVAC and hand sanitizer. We can't live like that for much longer. Um, And that's why there was the shuttered venue grant program. It would be awfully nice if they would actually give out some of that money, but that's another conversation. (laughs) Um, So COVID compliance should be pretty straightforward. 
people should show proof of vaccination. They should be told in advance that they're going to have to. And therefore, if they don't wish to or don't have it, um, they should know to participate in whatever is the activity virtually. And pretty much everything that I'm aware of, including I'm vice president of the Event Safety Alliance, our upcoming Event Safety Summit in early December is going to be a hybrid event where we are welcoming fully vaccinated people to attend in person in beautiful Lidditz, Pennsylvania. And for people who either can't travel, hopefully because they're super busy working, or they can't travel because of some other reason, they're broke. or because they're not fully vaccinated and therefore don't meet our criteria, they're welcome to participate virtually. And, you know, from that standpoint, we're not judging them. We want to make our, our learnings available, you know, at least partially in the hope that they'll hear something that causes them to work more safely, behave more safely in life. That's, that's the end game for us. Um, so, you know, kind of building off that discussion, uh, you know, so, for example, the show I'm working on now, I have this whole page of this is the, the COVID, you know, protocols. Um, Looking into your crystal ball, which I know is the thing that lawyers hate to do. They hate to to speculate, uh, but I'm going to make you do it. (laughs) Let's be fair. We did it a year ago. We were wrong. It's okay. So So we can be wrong again. So So, it's okay. No, I just, um, you know, three years, four years from now, you know, how much of this stays around? How much does this stay in the forefront of when we talk about event safety? Are we talking about communicable diseases? Are we talking about sanitization and stuff. I mean, how much of this is going to die off as people become vaccinated and how much is just part of our routine now? I think most of the sanitizing is going to go away. And the reason for that is it turns out not to have been necessary in the first place. Um, Well, not to have been necessary to stop COVID-19 transmission. Um, You know, this is my personal hang up and I'll, I'll own it. I find humans to be fairly disgusting. Um, <laughs> I, I travel a lot. I've been to I'm Germany. in airports. I've been to I, Germany. I see a lot of human behavior that just astonishes me. It's like, were, were you raised by wolves in a barn? Um, you know, people sneezing into their hands and then, you know, picking up their sandwich or shaking hands with somebody else. It's like, really, people? Um But I do expect that the hand sanitizer stations will go away because they're an expense that doesn't actually add much value. It's theater. Mm. Um, And CDC pretty quickly came around on that issue. So that was something from last spring. After Clorox made billions, come on. (laughs) Oh, Clorox made gazillions. I still have two bottles of Purell in my bookcase behind me. Wait, Um, wait, wait a couple more weeks, guys. We almost made a billion dollars. We have a a semi's worth of hand sanitizer sitting in our warehouse. Oh, Christ. Not not that we purchased. We were storing space for people, blah, 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 whatever. But it's just been in our way, a semi's worth for a year now because it hasn't moved. Sounds like an accidental fire. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of alcohol there. Um, so I think that most of the sanitizing stuff will go away. Would we be better off if people had better personal hygiene habits? Yes, we would be. We would be a lot better off. But I expect us to revert back to our usual disgusting selves. As for other techniques that really could mitigate some of the risk of communicable diseases, I don't know. I mean, even the last couple of months when CDC most recently, until yesterday, 
um, told us that <laughs> we didn't have to wear face coverings even indoors if we were fully vaccinated. What I saw um, both here in Arizona, where I'm located right now, and on the road, because I have been traveling again, is what pandemic? Uh, people haven't been doing anything different than they did before the pandemic started. Um, and, you know, underscoring that point, I, I was in Nashville last weekend for a conference, my first live presentation in 16 months. It was great. It was also a little scary. Um, Nashville, I did not know this before, shortly before I got there, apparently is like the bachelorette capital of, of the United States. And this really is a thing that you can observe downtown just by opening your eyes. There are all these party buses and there are, you know, screaming bachelorettes with like sashes saying, you know, bride to be and, you know, maid of honor and stuff. So that's why I know that they're bachelorette parties and they are sharing drinks and and they're all very close to each other and anything that one might do to mitigate the risk of a communicable disease is not being done by design by the very process of loading them onto these vehicles and sending them from club to club and whatever else they're doing that I choose not to think about so yeah what pandemic mm. It was hard to hold my breath during that. <laughs> um, you know, something that sprung out of this for me that I, I will confess that I have been remiss my entire career thinking about until now. I was just talking with Chris about this the other day. I have not paid attention to cancellation clauses in, in my contracts and projects that I'm working on. And so it's something that we the just, hell's wrong with yeah, you. Well, you know, it's just it's something. And it's by the way, Steve guy. gave a fantastic presentation on contracts and contract language for the event safety summit uh, last year. And it was I don't know if that's still around anywhere, but people should definitely go check that presentation. out. It was great. Really enjoyed it. Um, and I learned a lot from it. Um, so that's something that I've now I've, you know, gotten a couple kind of rough situations in the last couple of weeks where, you know, through sometimes through no fault of anybody's, the events canceled or rescheduled or moved or, or something like that. And then I'm like, wait, so do I just, I, I have no money for this gig that I've already put 30 hours into or, you know, so, so, um, that's something that I think, uh, our industry as a whole could get better at. And can you, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, it's, it is challenging to talk about contracts without having an actual contract to dissect and analyze. So, you know, for your podcast listeners, I apologize if this sounds kind of general. It's the only way I can do it for a general audience. Uh, this conversation goes a lot better if I have somebody's contract in front of me. Well, so, so can I, uh, I think maybe the yeah, scenario, Chris. the context that might be helpful that most, I think, listeners would be, a, a freelance audio engineer, right? So uh, a, a rock and roll corporate company, whatever, hires you to do a gig, um, and you got a PO from them, and and then at what point, 24, 48, 72, what if it's a week-long show and it's, it's only 24 hours? Like that, I think that, that rough context, I don't know if that helps at all as, as a frame of reference. Yeah, it really... So now you get the lawyerly, it depends. Sure. Um, <laughs> it depends on the reason for the cancellation. So let's do it two different ways. Um, let's say that, as happened a lot in 2020, the reason that the event got canceled is 
you know, some state governor said that you cannot assemble in large enough numbers. Um, basically, the governor declared the event illegal. Right. That triggers, in almost every contract, that triggers the force majeure provision. Force majeure, it's M-A-J-E-U-R-E. Force majeure is French. It means higher force, what Americans generally refer to as an act of God. Le um, majeure. I, yeah, exactly. Force majeure. Um, I do speak French. No Frenchman says force majeure. It's just an American Ever. contract term. Ever. Um, so rarely do force majeure provisions have any positive effect. They're really part of what I call the Lawyer's Full Employment Act because they appear in every contract, but they resolve nothing. And so lawyers get to argue about it back and forth. The clients wind up paying the lawyers to argue, and eventually the only ones who benefit financially are the lawyers. I'm not opposed to that situation sometimes because, you know, guys got to eat. But last year, and perhaps again if the wheels really fall off, um, force majeure provisions did apply, and they applied unambiguously. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I was working a show, and the headline artist um, had close contact with somebody in their crew who contracted COVID-19. Because they were in close contact, they could not get on the bus to come to our gig. They had to cancel. Um, There was a provision in the force majeure language that says close contact with somebody else who has contracted COVID-19 is a force majeure provision, meaning you can't come, and the contract is simply rescinded as to that artist. So the artist wasn't out of pocket anything. I mean, they had a guarantee, but, you know, they didn't have to forego it. Um, And the event people didn't have to pay it. It was, you know, either it was basically just kicked down the road because the artist did want to perform. So they kept their guarantee and they were going to come back another time. But there was no litigation over it because there was really no dispute. The contract addressed exactly that situation. So for your audio engineer scenario, if, God forbid, we start having events canceled because of some you know, legislative edict that says it's a, you know, it's a public health menace, then the contract is essentially ripped up. That's what force majeure provisions do. They void the contract and send each party to their respective corners as if they never met. The only hard part about that, well, there are several hard parts about that. One, if you already have purchased, say, a plane ticket, um, somebody's got to cover that plane ticket. So Mm. when I'm working on a contract for my clients, I specifically add language that if there are non-recoverable costs, you get those back. Mm-hmm. Now, even plane tickets, I, I live in Phoenix, so I usually fly Southwest Airlines. Their Western hub is here. Southwest is great about giving you your money back so long as you spend it on another Southwest flight. So I almost never have non-recoverable airfare. But not every airline is like that. So this is an implied plug to fly Southwest, which <laughs> I like very much. But... Even force majeure provisions have to accommodate expenses that you cannot recover, 
They do not, however, accommodate the time that you put in. So you are entitled to get a plane ticket home if the show, you know, gets set up and then canceled and you're already on site. But all these things have to be worked out in your contract. And this is going to sound like shilling for myself, and I suppose it is. Um, Most lawyers are not sensitive to these situations as they affect our industry. They don't know that you could put in a ton of time and buy a bunch of stuff in anticipation of going to the show site, and then the show is canceled, and you might still be out of pocket a bunch of stuff, as well as foregoing the opportunity to sell your services to somebody else for that same gig or the same weekend. So somehow these things have to be accounted for contractually, I don't know a lot of lawyers who are into the weeds enough to do that. So that's scenario one. I don't think there are going to be a lot of force majeure invocations from now on. And the reason for that is not that I'm optimistic about people following public health guidance and us beating this terrible pandemic. I'm not. Um, I wish I felt otherwise, but I don't. Rather, I think that most governors have already dug into whatever position they're in, and the states that are most, you know, sorry, Canadian listeners, the U.S. states that are most likely to have good reasons, health-related reasons, to have some directive from the legislative branch or the executive branch to cancel large events, the ones that are most likely to have public health problems are the ones least likely to have a governor directing that large events cannot go on. So everybody can take their own health into their own hands, I suppose. The contractual effect of that is is very difficult because in scenario two, now the audio engineer has to decide on his or her own if they want to incur the risk of being around potentially unvaccinated people or protect their health, breach their contract, and forego getting paid for a paying gig. Mm. There is not a one-size-fits-all contract answer for that. There just isn't. Have you seen any insurance claims because of this? Like, uh, and, And has insurance prices for touring went up since all this, just in anticipation or anything? It's too small a sample size for me to answer the insurance cost issue. Um, So I'm sorry, another plug for the Event Safety Alliance. I'm co-host of our event safety podcast. The most recent one that we have dropped was actually with four event insurance professionals, several of whom are on our board. So they're smart friends of ours. And we asked them questions just like that. There has not yet, at least, been any sort of mass dropping of insureds from insurance policies. Um, There also has not been, with one very notable exception, a ton of insurance claims related to COVID-19. The one notable exception really is just prurient interest for us. Um, It is venues who asserted 
at various times early last year that because of COVID-related closures mandated by public health officials, um, that they should be able to invoke their event cancellation insurance for reasons that are fairly technical about how insurance policies are written. Those claims have all failed. And as a lawyer, I can say they should fail. Um, Not necessarily happy or unhappy about that, but at least the law is working correctly there. So, uh, Chris, I think we should put a link to that uh, podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, that's so my father, Steve, my father's been an insurance agent for something like 40 years now uh, with a bunch of different companies and independent. So, you know, I've learned that. Uh, if if something is not specifically written into your insurance coverage, it's not covered. And so people go, well, how can that not be covered? And it's because it's not in there. Yeah. And, you know, like my joke about reading the Code of Federal Regulations before, you know, <laughs> if you suffer from insomnia like I do, that's a fine way of combating it. <laughs> insurance policies are also, um, you know, the, the line, the devil is in the details, The devil for insurance policies is in the exclusions. Um, Exclusions are where most of the action is in insurance policies. And, you know, what I would say about contracts, I will say about insurance policies as well. So podcast listeners, here you go. Do not try to be your own expert in the language of either your contract or your insurance policy. These words have very context-specific meaning, and respectfully to whoever is hearing this, you probably don't know the legal significance or the insurance significance of every word in your contract or your insurance policy, which is itself a contract. Mm. Um, so, you know, this is not for the faint of heart or for the, the dabbler this stuff is hard. These these are very difficult documents, even for me. I hate reading insurance policies. La face so, majeure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> First majeure. You know, picture Pepe Le Pew right now. We've said that more than French people say that already. <laughs> so if, if, if I'm a freelancer, what do I need to know about insurance? Should I should, can I get insurance so I'm covered because I'm probably not covered by the organization that's that's hovering me if right if I'm if I'm contracted and they hire me am I covered by their insurance? Do I need my own insurance? No. How does that work? No, no, you are not covered by their insurance if you're a freelancer. Yeah, this that's a low hanging fruit actually. That's why we. So I, I'll say this. So I, you know, I work for a corporate review company. We require all our freelancers to carry their own COI, their their own liability insurance. Um, and quite frankly, actually, if they don't, we have to pay extra to cover it because it has to be covered by somebody. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so you have to, um, yes, if you are doing freelance work and you don't have insurance, you're setting yourself up for, for, for problems. Yeah. I, I mean, Chris, let me, let me underscore that. So, the, you know, the lawyer is going to go all badass on you for a minute. Um, yeah. Freelancers need insurance because no one else is insuring you. And as I think hope we all understand working an event site means being surrounded by things that are at least potentially hazardous you know whether it's 
you know, tripping over cables that don't have a cable ramp over them or, you know, sharp metal objects with jagged edges or stuff falling out of the rigging or, you know, somebody dropping something. I mean, there are so many potential ways to get hurt or hurt somebody else. And, you know, I'm not being a, you know, a doomsday person. That's just the reality of of making the magic happen. And, you know, you have to be careful and get lucky. So since luck is not something that you can control, but insurance is, and I don't get any commissions from saying this. I'm just, you know, I hate to see people getting hurt and then having to pay their own medical bills out of their pocket. That's why I'm saying this stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for God's sake, if you work without insurance, please, please cut it out. You know, find yourself some insurance broker who will talk to you in English that you understand and sell you at least minimum coverage so that you're protected. Because as an independent contractor, as a freelancer, whoever is hiring you for your services is not insuring you. They're, they're not. So don't work without insurance coverage. You know, what we do is too potentially hazardous to, to do that. Take note, kitties. Yeah, I well, actually it was interesting. One of the the things a couple of years ago, I started my. Hold on, for the record, I don't want to just limit it to kitties. There are plenty of people who have been in the industry for a long time who don't have liability <laughs> insurance just, as well. No, you're so right. I'm we're just, gonna we're gonna we're gonna broad stroke this. No, no, you're absolutely right. Well, that's that that was one of the driving things be, behind me starting my own audio company. It's just me. I don't have a bunch of people on my payroll. I don't rent a bunch of gear. It's just it's just little old me. But that way we have we have insurance and we have workers comp. We have all these things in place. So that when someone hires me, they're actually hiring my company, and so I don't have to worry about those issues. Um, you got to micromanage right. yourself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, freelance listener, you know, if you want to work for somebody like Chris, he's going to require a COI, Certificate of Insurance. And if you don't have one, you have two choices at that point. Either buy insurance, which you should do, or you won't be able to work for Chris. And that is as it should be, because if he has an uninsured person on his work site and they get hurt, God forbid, then he has problems. Mm -hmm. And he's smart enough to try to avoid those problems by requiring a certificate of insurance from all of his freelancers. So we're a little bit up against the clock here, but we have two important things that we want to close with, Steve. First of all, thank you for sharing all that uh, information with us. It's great. It's always a pleasure. And I'm, I'm realizing, as I've, I've, again, I've been talking to Chris about this the last couple of days, I think it's time for my contract language to get updated, so I'm going to call you next week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Podcast <laughs> listeners, you heard it here first. <laughs> but um, all right, so uh, if we all come out to Arizona to visit you, where are you going to take us to eat? What's your favorite spot? Oh, boy. Um, as Scottsdale, which is where I am, is a very good eating town. So let's hold that question, and it depends on when you come, mm. um, because right now we are in indoors-only season because it's 1,000 <laughs> degrees here. But most of the year it's really nice for outdoor eating, and then it'll depend on um, not only the food choices, which change all the time. We have a lot of oh, oh, For the record, I liked it from a lawyer standpoint. You couldn't just say, hey, we're going to go here to eat. You had to disclaimer. You had to, it depends. You had to do all that in front of, we're just talking food here, guy. Yeah, yeah. Where are we going to eat? Ultimate favorite. Ultimate Anything favorite. that ends with yeah. Berto's 
Filibertos, Rolibertos, Filibertos. <laughs> no, we are not going to Filibertos or Umbertos or any other yeah, so cheapo Mexican places. Chicago um, Hamburger Company. Um, th- there is a super swanky place called um, Sanctuary. Um, so if you guys are buying, then uh, we're going Christmas. there. Um, it- it's on the north side of Camelback Mountain, and it is exquisite, especially at sunset. Um, so as so for those of you listening, if you hear me complaining about our heat, it's because it's really damn hot here right now, and it's not going to end for another three months. But when it does, it's very nice living here. I heard there was a huge. All right, so that's one question. Night. You know, TBD. Chris Leonard. What's next? So, uh, so Steve, um, this may, if you if you could define your legacy or how you would want to be known, how would you define that? I'm not dead yet. (laughs) (laughs) Best answer. (laughs) Merely a flesh wound. No, I no, I know. It's 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 you know, it's obviously something we typically ask audio engineers, and it's just something I like to think about. Obviously, we talk to people of all different ages, and sometimes I know, I know the word legacy is maybe kind of grand-esque, you know, um, but I do like to think that, I mean, legacy could be something you're working towards and you want to leave behind, or it could just be, hey, like, hey, if I could remember it in such a way, how would I remember it, whether it's a, a work thing, a personal thing, or whatever. So I think it's a, a, a healthy thing to think about. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just give you my professional one. Um, the Event Safety Alliance through our president and founder, Jim Digby, um, has always lived by the motto, life safety first. The full thought there is, in the event industry, you know, our culture for many years was the show must go on. And we're trying to change that culture, person by person, issue by issue, to let's put life safety first. And if the show can go on safely, fantastic. Let's do it. We are the people who make the magic, but let's do that and bring everyone with us to the next gig. Mm. Um, so that's, that's what I hope will be my professional legacy is, you know, helping to transform the culture from the show must go on to life safety first. It's awesome. Yep, it is. Steve, that this is has been great. fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Next time we'll talk about baseball. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs>